When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, has the BBC got a problem with millennials with BBC Three Online Only and Radio One investing resources in YouTube? Has the corporation given up? on broadcast telly? Why did the government block a candidate to the Channel 4 board? And why are The Guardian writing leaders about it? Our pundits explain all. Plus, Netflix reveal they're not revealing their ratings, still. We get a sneak peek at the latest tech for the radio industry, and in the media quiz, we pick another tired game show format and give it the shiny floor treatment. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me in a noisier-than-usual part of the hospital club is because some sort of exciting corporate event is happening in our usual hangout is the combined intellect of three media practitioners. From Business Insider, we have senior news editor Jake Cantor. Hello. From Folder Media, radio consultant Matt Deegan. Hello. And making her debut on the show, TV producer Susie Marsh. Hello, Susie. Hello. Hi. Last time we spoke, we were in a bus on the way to watch Shane Smith. <laughs> we were, yeah, in Edinburgh. It was a, yeah, it was certainly an eye-opening uh, evening that was with Shane. Oh, hard going, wasn't it? I couldn't it wait was. for that talk to be over. Yeah. Uh, Susie, it's come to my attention that your current job, producing the National Lottery Live, sort of means you're on the show uh, two weeks late, because we talked in the last yes. episode all about how that's going online only. Yes, that's right. Yes, I, I listened to that. Um, it is going online. It has been something that's been happening over the years, because obviously it started back in 94 and it was a live, it had massive event. It had huge huge viewing figures and and although the event still carries on and still has massive buy-in from all the people uh, who buy the tickets every week there's a different feeling about television how television uses it now so obviously Camelot who run the National Lottery are looking to go more digitally with their users and perhaps those who watch it are on Saturday night slightly different in terms of where they're hoping to go but I think the thing about Camelot is they would like to keep as many users as possible, as many ticket buyers as possible. So going online gives you that opportunity to reach more people. Doesn't mean that I won't have a job after December, but hey. <laughs> so what, So is there no big shiny floor unveiling of the balls anymore? No. No. No, that will be gone. So at the moment on Wednesday, they do the draw. We have another studio there over at Pinewood and the draw is done there, automated as such and uploaded to YouTube every Wednesday. So the same thing will happen, except it will go onto the iPlayer on Saturday night. So it will still be found on the BBC, but via the iPlayer now. So. And it is your understanding that it is something that's come from Camelot, or was it a decision by the BBC? I think it's a combined decision, really, because and it has always been, because that's the nature of what this thing is. It's the most bizarre 
more different kind of television programme out there because it has a commercial arm to it and yet the BBC make it and, and it's a massive national event. Again, there's nothing much like that else nowadays especially and certainly getting to grips with it initially was extremely odd from my background in just making programmes for commissioners that are about getting people watching for various reasons. This was about giving information that was extremely important to many millions. I mean, we can get up to, you know, five and a half, six million at Christmas viewing figures, which, you know, for any eight-minute show, it's not bad, really. No, indeed. And we were speculating last episode about whether or not removing the National Lottery from its broadcast TX would affect the ratings for the quiz shows that wrap around it. I will be very interested to see that, um, because certainly in our ratings, the nature of each quiz show is different, obviously, in who watches it. But certainly when we do our hits, especially the lotto draw, uh, there is always a rise in in viewing figures. But also when we do a 10 o'clock on Saturday night, 10-minute slot we're still making three and a half million viewers. Quite often we're top five in the broadcast entertainment shows of the week for an eight-minute show. Well, um, certainly something for you to put on your CV on LinkedIn come January, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Best of luck yep, with that. Yep. Freelance world, I guess. Well, it is freelance world. And I've been very lucky. I've been there two and a half years, which who does that anywhere in whatever job. So I've just had a ball. Uh, and Matt, you were just recently in Denmark talking about the future of radio. Uh, yeah, so um, there's a good radio conference coming up in Amsterdam in March called Radio Days Europe and so I'm helping uh, the team there program that to come up with lots of different sessions Uh, but I've just come back from the Netherlands as we took all the folder team uh, to Efteling which is a Dutch theme park for our Christmas party so if I look a little dazed it's because of that What's different about a Dutch theme park to for example going to Alton Towers? Well uh, Efteling are a a sponsor on Fun Kids so always happy to go and and see, see them too Okay, excellent. And Jake Cantor, uh, you know what, I don't need to ask what you've been up to because we're actually going to start with one of your stories this week. Do you feel special? Well, yeah, incredibly special. This is a bit of original reporting <laughs> by Jake Cantor leading the media podcast. It's a career highlight for you uh, because you've been digging through the BBC's latest TV audience figures and you've discovered they have a problem with millennials. That's right, yeah. I guess the starting point for this was the BBC was kind of crowing about uh, Planet Earth 2 beating the X Factor uh, in terms of the battle for young viewers, uh, which, you know, is, is, is interesting and admirable, um, kind of not very surprising. Planet Earth is probably the best television show this year, and uh, the X Factor is so tired it hasn't got out of bed for three years, so it wasn't really a fair battle. But anyway, that was the starting point for this, and I thought I'd look at the BBC's youth audience take a sort of broader view and see how it's done this year and the results I guess are not massively surprising BBC Three's gone off air and the BBC's youth audience has fallen uh, around 7% But is that the audience of people watching their output including online or is it just the broadcast It's just output? television Just okay. television. So I guess the BBC's say in response, well yeah we'd expect that, we put BBC Three online but it's still very popular I think that's, I think that's probably true and some might even say that they the the drop could have been greater for the BBC but I think it's still worrying I think the BBC has a job to keep young viewers watching television by taking BBC three off air and some of the other channels perhaps not delivering in the same way that they should be uh, in in terms of young audiences then they, they there's a risk that there's a gap that opens up in the BBC's audience and it, it risks losing a future generation of TV viewers. Yeah, I mean, Susie, you're nodding along. The risk, I guess, is that millennials then 
he said millennials grow up. I suppose millennials can be up to about 34, can't they? But, yes, you know, yeah. that generation grow up as licence fee payers thinking, why am I paying this thing that I don't yeah. watch anymore? I think that's a valid question in some ways in terms of the way they're going to be viewing. My, my son's 16. He's the beginning of a millennium. Well, he was born in the millennium. And certainly he views things in a different way. He always second screens everything. But he still makes an appointment to view. He still sat down at 9 o'clock. I'm a celebrity. But still... And I do think they have that appointment to view. They are more choice in what they're doing. I don't think we should ignore the fact that they did watch Planet Earth 2 because actually we'd be slightly arrogant to think that might not be something that would interest them even. So I think the fact that they did is really important. But I think it's really also important to realise that we must accept the different viewing habits and that that is part of their nature. The element of choice, they watch YouTubers making their own decisions, making their own editorial, and they think they should be just as in charge of their viewing as, as those people are in terms of their making of television. I mean, so, there, was a, there was an important win for the BBC earlier this year when they managed to extend the licence fee to iPlayer. Yes. Uh, which means that all those people only engaging with the BBC's content online still have to pay their licence fee. And from an advertising point of view, Matt, does it matter in a way that ITV, Channel 5 are gaining from millennials not watching BBC Three? Because actually, I mean, that's quite good, isn't it? The well, BBC can say, well, look, we're giving you advertising money because they're coming to you. There's and, more uh, impact probably available up for grabs when people want a, a TV moment in front of a television and, and not consuming something online. I think one of the dangers for the BBC is that it removes younger people from seeing trails, from understanding what's on the networks, um, which are much more obviously skippable on, on, on iPlayer or, or getting it that way. Do you uh, lose touch with having those kind of points where you, you, you go to auntie? I mean, I was watching last night one of those Stacey Dooley documentaries on iPlayer. I don't even know if that was a BBC. Is that a BBC Three yeah. thing? It is, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, it just came off iPlayer. I, I didn't even know if that was an iPlayer exclusive, whether she's now a BBC One talent or whether it's BBC Three. Does it actually matter? Aren't we moving to this viewer, world where it, it doesn't, doesn't matter? Does it? For the viewer, it doesn't. And that's shown in terms of Amazon and Netflix as well. But I think it only matters for those broadcasting it in terms of quantifying everything and then knowing where to go in the future, perhaps. You know, for the viewer, we've taken much more ownership of our own habits and we believe we can be in control of that now. Channel brands are less important these days. People go to certain shows on demand players because they're drawn by those shows, not by the channel brand. And that's it. So in the future, millennials are just as likely, aren't they, to go to the BBC brand as they were in the past? Well, I I don't know. I think, is it kinds of programmes as well? So if you're very, very comfortable consuming on-demand content from Amazon or Netflix or more likely to consume that than, than older demos, then that's less of a grab for the BBC. The BBC aren't running lots of event-based programming, so whether that's I'm a Celebrity, The Voice, X Factor, perhaps less sport on the BBC now. Again, less opportunities to capture a chunk of that audience. I mean, we're speculating quite a lot. There's one yeah. thing I think that's... You say that it, like that's it, unusual it, for this uh, <laughs> Incumbent on the BBC. I mean, it's been 10 months now. I think we are due an, a coherent update on how BBC Three is performing, and I think that needs to come soon from the BBC. Careful choice of words there. Are you suggesting that they've been incoherent thus far in what they've said? <laughs> well, they've put nothing out. I mean, we've had no, nothing to grasp in terms of how BBC Three is doing and whether that decision has been the right one. And Matt, when it comes to Radio One, because you've been following sort of how they've been migrating their audience from YouTube and developing their online presence... Is this playing out well for them as well, or does it still matter that their numbers are going down in terms of analogue and, and well, digital? They've, they've got a number of challenges. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be in their position. They get kind of bashed from from all angles. And what is interesting about their non-radio activity? So, you know, they have an iPlayer channel. They commission new content for that each week. 
uh, that is a very high quality and is very watchable. I know that speaking to some of those guys there, they have issues with how much that can be promoted across the BBC suite of products, especially when BBC Three is a focus, doing a similar kind of job in, in a youthy space. Um, I think Radio One, the radio end of things, uh, is clearly under pressure and is probably underperforming the market as a whole. So I think it's easy to go, oh, 1524 doesn't listen to the radio anymore. Actually, if you look at the ratings, the reach is fairly solid. The hours have dropped, but you know, Kiss and Capital haven't seen the same element of decline that, that, that Radio One has. So um, it'd be interesting to see whether 2017 they have another look at the schedule or, or, or what they're doing. I'm going to ask a question that has just occurred to me. I've never really thought about the answer to this before, but perhaps you know it. Does Radio One on YouTube take advertising? Uh, n- as far it didn't used to I don't think it does now what is interesting is they split out a lot of the live lounge into a Radio 1 Vivo channel that I imagine is probably on demand from the record companies who own Mm. most of Vivo and I imagine that's monetized outside of the UK Uh, from that point of view it's mm. quite a dangerous space for Radio 1 isn't it they've for a long time been on the precipice of government and whatever saying if we're going to commercialise anything, Radio 1 seems like an obvious place to start. Yeah. And here they are saying, don't listen to us, kids. Watch us on a commercially owned broadcast video channel. Yes. I mean, I think that they would probably argue that they'd quite like people on, on iPlayer, but obviously the kids don't necessarily want to want to be there. Radio Just 1 is... I told you I'm watching Stacey Dooley. Uh, radio 1 is the biggest radio YouTube channel in the country. And when I looked at it last week, they, they'd done 40 million views last month, so in November, uh, on YouTube. So it works well, though... Obviously, if you have Taylor Swift turn up, you're going to do a couple of million views on YouTube. But interestingly, uh, Radio 1 material has been sold overseas before and is still sold overseas. Some of the dance programming is. So is it that much different to run ads for BBC Worldwide on YouTube outside of the UK? Okay, let's stay with the young'uns now. And the fresh-faced staff of digital news platform BuzzFeed UK have requested union recognition. In a letter to editor Janine Gibson, roughly 80 journalists at BuzzFeed asked for the power of collective bargaining through the NUJ. Now, BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti is in London at the moment. He's obviously a little peeved at the timing of this and wrote an email a few days ago saying to the staff, we'd like an opportunity to talk directly with you before you make any irreversible decisions. Susie, this is classic schism, isn't it, between sort of new media and old media. Digital media is sceptical about traditional worker rights. We've seen that with Uber going to the courts. And yet BuzzFeed is kind of trying to take staff from institutions like The Guardian, so you've got to expect that they're going to want trade union representation. Uh, Do you think BuzzFeed are right to be sceptical about it, or do you think the journalists are right to ask for it? I think both, actually. I think it's obvious that employees would want to protect themselves, but I also think it's totally fair for a company to say please come to us directly. I thought it was very open and honest. As long as you're being open and honest, then that's absolutely how it should be. But I do think protection from a union is, is the right thing for the majority, you know, because they are a majority, but they're, they're employees at the end of the day, it, or, or freelancers in this case. Well, this is it. We were talking earlier about uh, <laughs> yeah. our own job prospects. Yeah. I mean, actually, in telly, there are a lot of people who don't have any union recognition, yeah. who have grown up in a world where they wouldn't expect it. No, and also, but I, there's a, a sense of isolation and vulnerability that goes along with that, because I am my own own self my own brand and I have to go and sell myself all the time and quite often 
well, definitely with no support. Not there is back to you, though, isn't there? Well, there, there is, but they're not going to help, help me get a job on a month-by-month basis. That's, they're there to protect you when things get rough. And I suppose most people will, will appreciate that, but not a lot of people always use it either. So there is that quandary, is once you get it, make sure you use it or, or, or find places for it so that it doesn't become you know, something that's there but unusable by the majority. Well, there's often the feeling, and I talk from personal experience here because my wife has just been denied her flexible working request following maternity. Oh, right, uh, I've had that situation. From, have you? Yeah. Yes, I have. From her employer, which is a newspaper. Right. She's technically with the NUJ or the yes. BUJ or whatever and feels like if she made an appeal with them, yes. she would be going against the company that would stop them Well, that's why everybody stops complaining about anything generally, yeah. whatever it is, because you know that you will burn your bridges. And the thing that you want least at that moment of your most difficult times when you've had a child and you're wrestling with how you deal with that is for somebody to go, well, actually, no, you can't do that. You're not. I mean, I was literally offered, having been a producer, I went back after three months. There was loads of history to my situation. My son was very sick. Um, and the only part-time job they would offer me, remember, I'm a producer, was a receptionist position. <laughs> now, this was a long time ago. Yeah. But still, the fact that the, the method of treatment that people get was incorrect but I but I had no support then because again 15 years ago things were a bit different anyway I think and I do believe that flexible working is the way forward because you lose so much talent through you know I, I have to work but I want to work and so many people do want to work particularly so, since so many media jobs are to a daily or kind of bi-daily deadline it's not as if you're always well, exactly. working on long-term projects I've worked on daily shows I've worked on weekly shows it is very easy to transfer it's fear from those above that you might be getting something a better deal than I am so Jake you work for Business Insider what's the deal there is there a union representation for the staff there's not no um, is there any expectation <laughs> I, I don't think there is from what I can gather, I don't think there's the desire for that or the, or the ambition for it either. I think we've got a very young team. It goes back to what you were saying about BuzzFeed hiring a lot of traditional journalists mm. from The Guardian. We come from a slightly different place. Uh, I, I thought the fact that BuzzFeed published this story was quite admirable. Yeah, we know about uh, this because yeah. BuzzFeed yeah. published yeah. it on their own website. I think, yeah. I mean, they've probably taken a decision to own the story. I mean, it would have been reported elsewhere. I would certainly have written this story. Um, but the fact that they're taking ownership of it is, is, is a good thing. It sounds like they're not going to get what they want. Jonah Peretti was pretty... I mean, he poured cold water on this idea in his email uh, reply. I mean, I, I, can I just read you a little bit? Please. Where he, where <laughs> he says, unions represent employees around a rigid skill set that doesn't reflect the fluid and flexible way we work. They introduce an extra layer of bureaucracy and process and they unnecessarily divide our teams, limiting the benefits. I mean, it's, he's going to say no, and they're going to sit down on Saturday to, to talk it out over a Sunday lunch, I think, over a, over a pub lunch, I think. <laughs> Ten great reasons you're not getting a union is the BuzzFeed listicle. Oh, Matt, that did I steal joke. your joke? Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I'm disappointed that his email didn't say top 20 reasons yeah. why to reject union. Neither of us should write for BuzzFeed because it's always odd numbers. It would never be 10 or 20. It would be 9 or 17. I mean, Matt, the agility of the workforce in a digital environment and all that bollocks, I mean, you know, there is something to be said for responding quickly, isn't there, as a digital business, which might be hampered by unions. That's right. I think often late union recognition, sort of like BuzzFeed is facing, is sometimes because of the result of what's happened previously. Uh, I think some companies where employees feel that their workforce cares about them more or they get a better deal are less likely to go down this route. But, you know, it's for all of those businesses to to decide or the, the staff of those businesses to decide there's a precedent here as well the, this same 
debate happened with Vice earlier this year mm. and Vice uh, said, no, we're not going to recognise the union. Instead, we're going to set up some sort of employee committee, uh, which the NUJ was very grumpy about. They called it a sort of old-fashioned uh, <laughs> union-busting ruse. Who knew, Susie? We were both saying Shane Smith seemed like such a great guy. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> uh, one more story in this section, and that is news that the government took the unusual step of blocking a Channel 4 board appointment. That caused frustration at the corporation since the appointment in question was to be the first board member of a black or minority ethnic background. Uh, Jake, four white men were eventually appointed. Business as usual. I, I can't emphasise enough how um, the strength of feeling at Channel 4 over this issue behind, behind the scenes um, sort of a mixture of anger and complete dismay because fundamentally it undermines everything that Channel 4 is trying to achieve. Uh, they set themselves up as a broadcast that championed diversity in all its various shapes and sizes. And for them to have a board that is exclusively white, uh, you know, pretty much middle class, is, you know, a, a real... Uh, it, just, it just completely undermines that work, I think. You've got this situation where you've got ministers who've been in their jobs for five months, less than five months, deciding on what is good for the TV industry. Uh, they're telling really experienced people, telling Ofcom what is good for Channel 4, and that is ridiculous. I mean, that, that's the irony, isn't it, Matt? The, the person we're talking about, by the way, is the former Arts Council deputy, Althea Efenshive. It was revealed on Tuesday that was the board member that was turned down. And that was the decision, ultimately, of the Culture Secretary, Karen Bradley. Some people would say, well, why is Karen Bradley dictating who else is up to a job when Karen Bradley herself doesn't really seem to have the CV to have the job she has. But also it's the government's continuing obsession with interfering in broadcasting. You know, a, a relatively small industry in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I mean, this one, I mean, surely someone somewhere, you know, DCMS are not a thick bunch of people. They are a bright lot that someone would see that the optics of this, even if you ignore the, the, the ridiculousness of not making the channel that's supposed to be different uh, be a, have a broad board. Why did anybody recognise this would be an issue and why it would of course come out in the, come out in the press? Because they're all white middle class people. Also what's kind of crazy is that you had um, the, one of the last uh, DCMS ministers, Ed Vasey, doing actually a pretty good job on the BAME issue and raising it quite aggressively at doing TV conferences um, and bringing it to the fore. Susie? I mean, it does seem so obvious that she is so obviously talented to do all of this, but also it just begs a question about what the skill sets are that are required anyway that, and what where she didn't tick the boxes, I suppose, but also who's to say that those boxes are to be the same every time somebody is placed? And actually, are you looking as BAME as being an attribute because it brings so much from so different places? She started out in secondary education. Um, she's worked with um, children and, and youth who needed support, who didn't get, you know, nobody else has any kind of background like that. And if you're looking for diversity, and certainly that's obviously been on the cards, especially in television, and we're being encouraged to look at that. I mean, how do they extricate themselves from this? Because really, it's a nonsense, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like casting a programme, I suppose, isn't it? You, you want a range of people that bring something different to the table. You don't yeah, want everyone to Yeah, and that's the, the attributes. To say that she hasn't got the skill set, well, why is the skill set led, why are the job descriptions led by the skill sets of the people who are already there? Surely the skill sets can be moved and changed depending on who the people are each time, you know, and she clearly has a different set of skills, which is why you would bring her in.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Time for some more stories from the week in media. And this week saw the annual Radio TechCon event. Stay with me, I know it sounds nerdy. It's actually really interesting. It's where new tech is showcased by the industry for the industry, frankly, for the nerdy part of the industry, which is why Matt Deacon is here. Huh. Matt, what did we learn this year? Uh, well, what's interesting about Radio TechCon is that it used to be a Radio Academy event, but it's now an independent one. So the, the people who used to run it have sort of taken it out on the road themselves. Very well attended, about 150 people. Interesting mix, yes, the sort of engineering end of things, very well represented. But I think today, so much about technology is connected to program making. And it's important, I think, if you're a progressive program maker to be exposed to to some of these topics and I was talking to some of the people who went who weren't necessarily on the the more um, geeky end of things and and they definitely took something from it and some good examples from around the world uh, running radio stations uh, as a conference call interesting session on that what, by, what does that mean? Unpick well, that for so us. where there are parts of the world where uh, they're not so keen on an independent voice and don't necessarily uh, would tolerate studios, actually hosting a big conference call that brings on guests and hosts and then broadcasting that as a different way to reach people. And listeners, in effect, ring in to, to stay silent and hear, hear audio, what's wow. going on in their country. Um, and also talking about some of the, the different... Uh, technological aspects of how uh, radio is made or, or distributed as a 
big sessions on binaural. Uh, so if you think of headphones, and a lot of audio consumption now is in a headphone environment rather than a speaker in a box, uh, what can you do with productions? You know, how can you make a, an exciting drama where you're scared about the person who's behind you walking towards you as their, as their footsteps approach? And I think that's as relevant to a Radio 4 producer as a podcaster, as uh, Audible, you know, Amazon's audio uh, system to encourage people to make new different content. And object-based radio is one of the buzzwords. Yeah, so there's, there's a bit of a view that if you think of if you think of a traditional or interestingly, so th- th- this show now there are one, two, three, four of us speaking, uh, and we're all on a different uh, mic channel. Uh, so. In effect, we could do a re-edit of this program where I disappeared and the talk about Radio TechCon wasn't there, or one where somebody just wanted to hear what Jake says. So actually starting to describe that metadata. Matt always does his own cut of that. (laughs) (laughs) Just Um, Jake's channel isolated. (laughs) You might not want to listen to a 40-minute podcast, but you might want certain elements. So actually when you're recording that program, to start to think about all of the different elements in different ways. It's a bit like choosing your own angle when you're watching a football match. or A bit like that. And some of that you think, oh, that's what they always said in the 90s, digital tech television would be like and we never saw it but actually if you think about um, a podcast of a radio program so it might have a music bed underneath that you can't clear for podcasting Mm. so that could be removed uh, or an element that works in a different territory so it's more about thinking about the right kind of technology to use when making something I I thought that some of the BBC trials are quite interesting in this space as well Mm. aren't they they're doing things around like the radio being able to address you and give yeah. you local travel news and things like that when yeah, or, you walk in a room. I, I mean, that, that's what I've heard the well, BBC sort of also, investigating. Also about show length. So there's a bit about um, a drama producers uh, thinking about what are the core elements of, of programmes. So if you've just got 20 minutes, you get that version. If you've got an hour, you get a slightly longer version. Uh, and obviously there's... Uh, it's an interesting technical challenge. Is it something that the listeners want? And I think as we start to see the BBC roll out their personalised audio streaming for listeners, which can include you know, news or sport that's more specific to an individual, or actually knowing that someone can o- only ever really has a tolerance of 20 minutes for a doc or a, um, or a drama. And if the programme's made in the right way, then they can get that. Okay, and if you've only got a tolerance of three minutes for radio geekery, good news, because we're going to talk about on-demand video again. Uh, We're going to discuss Netflix now, who are to launch 20 new non-scripted series next year. Susie, why do you think they're doing that? Well, I think making a murder had a lot to do with it, didn't it? So I suppose really water cooler as well. Everybody, they, their fantastic ability to go viral with everything in conversation has made them realise that there is just as much interest and enthusiasm. Certainly the girls in my office are consumed with interest on crime docs and anything like that. Um, and making it accessible and making it something that people can watch easily and on demand and in that bulk s- scenario, it, again, it's about us being the rulers of our viewing isn't it it's been hugely popular and quite incredible actually more so than on terrestrial i think but do you think there are some genres that just wouldn't work on netflix i mean you've got a background in in daytime this morning the right stuff things like that yeah do you think that kind of show could work i mean that seems like something that you'd want to engage with live they're talking about the issues of the day it's distraction telly could that work well, I suppose daytime is the same as news in, in, in that sort of way, in that you're in the moment, aren't you, and you're watching it in the moment. But saying that, certainly lots of it is being pulled out and put online mm-hmm. to then watch and rewatch. you know. I think, yeah, I think perhaps there's not a place for, for live daytime stuff in there, but I do see the possibility of those kinds of uh, non-scripted being really popular because 
it's been proved by the amount of people who've consumed it so quickly and so greedily as well, I think. Well, except we don't know the amounts, do we, Matt well, Dagan? Well, they, don't, they never want to talk about no. their ratings. Why is that? Um, because anecdotally, as Susie said, we know people are watching, they talk yeah. about it. Because I guess the only people that want to know really about the ratings are people that want to either to give it a kick. Yes. Um, they're about satisfying subscribers. Uh, as long as their metrics show that they're doing that, that's all they really care about. I think it's fascinating that they won't even tell the producers yes, of the programme. Yes, I do, I do, yeah. And if the, if the deal is Netflix will give you a, a whole series or a two-series commission uh, that's incredibly well-funded, but hey, you'll never know how many people will watch it, I'd probably I'd sooner take the money. Yeah. But, but um, <laughs> a non-scripted, you know, Chelsea Handler's on Netflix. I mean, I, I wonder how well that's done. That seems um, like a bad idea to me. So this is a, a late-night chat show. She's a big star in America, mm. isn't she? But still... I know last, last episode we were talking about how late night chat probably won't work on ITV either. It just doesn't seem like the right place on Netflix either to me. I don't know. I, I'd be happy for that, you know. And I know that Netflix has given opportunities to shows that were absolutely thrown out of, of very many commissioners' offices over in um, America. You know, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend went banging on doors for years and it is the best thing. And she won an Emmy within a year once it was on Netflix, you know. So I think they're giving, in being given the opportunities and the money... Um, they're gratefully received, aren't they? And Jake, you're one of the journalists who would be very excited about uh, I'd be Netflix delighted ratings. to give Netflix a kick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, the big story, obviously, is sort of Amazon versus Netflix, isn't it? I suppose maybe Hulu in the US. Um, are Netflix winning? It feels like they're winning. I honestly don't have the data to back up any speculation I might have. <laughs> I don't know. It, it feels like they sort of win the, the marketing war, the, the, the water cooler war. But Amazon's had a big moment with the Grand Tour and, you know, they tell us that that has broken all records for viewing. We have to kind of take their but word for it. on Amazon. Yeah. yeah. On which the biggest hit before was what? Transparent. It's about a transgender Jewish family. That's a brilliant show. It's a brilliant show. It's not Top Gear, is it? No. But I think but the biggest thing... it's not Top Gear though anyway, anyway, is the, it? The biggest <laughs> thing with Netflix over the last couple of weeks is the downloading. Yeah. So they're making uh, shows available to download uh, so you can watch them anytime, anywhere. That is a big deal. Uh, it means that the service is now in line with Amazon, and I think that will only mean growth for Netflix. My, my Twitter is basically a bunch of media wankers anyway, but I've never seen so many people in one go go, oh my God, Netflix download is going to change my life. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that I saw from the, that Netflix article was that uh, they're going to, in effect, make international versions of some of that non-scripted simultaneously themselves a lot of it from Netflix studios rather than being outsourced too which is a bit of a bit of a shift this is fantastic news for British producers as well that's the other thing oh tell us uh, more well it, the opportunities not everything can be the about opportunities Prince Philip, <laughs> are incredible they've got 30 projects in development in the UK at the moment which is astonishing and if those projects get away you know, they'll be worth millions of pounds to the industry here right some very brief news in brief now I'm going to give you a sentence each uh, the BBC have made three decisions of note this week and I want you to tell me why they made them uh, Susie the BBC have decided to ban unaccompanied children from TV recordings why uh, that comes off the back of the report the Savile report doesn't it um, that's saying that they have to do more to uh, look after children obviously um, it's a no-brainer I mean certainly the environment I work in nobody is allowed to stand in a corridor on their own with a child at all it is not an option um, and I think that's absolutely correct and it should always have been like that we are there to protect children you know it's unfortunate that it came to the whole environment that, that brought us to this place that is very obvious that we should be doing this but it's the right thing to do okay matt radio 2 have backtracked on the idea of replacing bob shannon with another controller why 
uh, basically to save a quarter of a million quid or 200 grand from paying that person. Well got, saved, I think. Yeah, and uh, I think those two editors will do a good job. I think in the future it puts an interesting question about whether the networks that have controllers, should they have editors? But then if you look at BBC Telly, BBC Two hasn't got a controller, but BBC Three has. Okay, and Jake, Peter Preston wrote in The Observer this week that the BBC are finding it hard to fill the position of chair of the new board. Why? Because it's an enormous, unrelenting, (laughs) high-profile job with a very meagre salary. Meagre salary of 100 grand, folks. uh, I'd do it if they're interested. (laughs) Peter Preston painted a fantastically bleak picture for the government on this issue, and I agreed with every single word of it. And the government, to make matters worse, can't afford to make the same mistake, the same mess they've made at this Channel 4 process. Uh, there is just time now for our media quiz. This week it is entitled National Record of Achievement. The media podcast has been handed the infamous Burgundy folders for three media organisations. Uh, those over 38 will have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I will read out an achievement. You tell me whose folder this is. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. So Jake, you'll say... Jake. Matt, you'll say... Matt. And Susie, you'll say... Susie. The winner gets out of PE, the loser gets double science. Here we go with achievement number one. Awards. 2016 Journalist of the Year. Jake. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Yes, Jake. Laura Koonsberg. Correct. The BBC's political correspondent, Laura Koonsberg, has been honoured at the British Journalism Awards. Uh, What do you think was her secret, Susie? I think she's very good at her job and has all the skills I think surely that's all she needs isn't she which is not what lots of people were commenting about what, what she's Ooh, good what at what were they saying go on well there's loads of commenting about what gender she is for heaven's sake as is if that's something really to do still. with it yeah. she's okay. a great news factor on Twitter as well yes thank you point to Jake here's achievement number two experience over 225 years in print journalism buzzing with your name when you know the answer Susie Susie the Observer. The Observer, correct. The Observer is the world's oldest Sunday newspaper. Celebrated milestone this week, 225 years in print journalism. You an Observer reader? Yeah. Yeah? Care to name one of their biggest scoops from the last 225 years? I'm sure this would be a fitting tribute. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Jake? I don't read The Observer. Great, OK. <laughs> and finally, achievement number three, Achievements 2016, the first UK newspaper to make more money from its digital arm than its print edition. Matt. Matt. Is it the Financial Times? It is, and we have a tie. Extraordinary scenes. Uh, the FT, after the site relaunch in October, now claims to have the fastest loading news website in the world, but more importantly, the revenues to go with it. Matt, do load times actually matter? Do they make any difference to that stat? I think people, especially on mobile, if you're out and about and you click on a link and something's kind of half loading, do, do you stick around or flip back? Most of the load time is all the crap that goes alongside ad networks that, you're sell- that your data's being sold to other people in exchange for auto-bid advertising. And that's the crap that normally uh, delays your page load. But isn't it actually the point that because it's behind a paywall, if you've actually paid to read it, that's when you really don't want any load time, isn't it? I mean, that's the secret of Spotify, isn't it? You go to the premium one, you cut out the ads, it's all really quick. That's why they had to bring their load time down. Yeah, and, and also I think they are not uh, leaning on all these crappy ad networks, so they uh, don't have to worry about it and their pages load quicker. Well, there is no winner because you all got a point. Can uh, the DCMS choose who gets to be the winner? <laughs> well, then they'd definitely be one of the men. Uh, that's it for our show today. Thank you very much, Matt Deegan, Susie Marsh and Jake Cantor. Now, Christmas is coming. Why not give the gift of life to this podcast? Go to themediapodcast.com slash 
donate and take out a voluntary subscription. Hell, you could even buy one for your nan. You know, no one reads the Radio Times anymore, why give her a subscription to that? Just a few quid a month will help us plan shows into 2017 and beyond. TheMediaPodcast.com slash donate, folks. Thanks. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.